Turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter number 13. Man, what a blessing to be in the house of God. Another day, I don't know about you, God's been good to me today, and uh, I want to praise Him for it. I don't deserve any of it, amen. But you know, I never have deserved any of His goodness, but I've got it all by grace, amen. And I praise His name for it. Nehemiah chapter number 13, and uh, we'll begin reading at the first verse of the chapter. We'll read down to verse number 9, Nehemiah. Chapter number 13, verse number 1. The Bible says, On that day they read in the book of Moses in the audience of the people, and therein was found written that the Ammonite and the Moabite should not come into the congregation of God forever, because they met not the children of Israel with bread and with water, but hired Balaam against them, that he should curse them. Howbeit our God turned the curse into a blessing. Now it came to pass, when they had heard the law, that they separated from Israel all the mixed multitude. Before this, Eliashib, the priest, having the oversight of the chamber of the house of our God, was allied unto Tobiah. And he had prepared for him a great chamber, where aforetime they laid the meat offerings, the frankincense, and the vessels, and the tithes of the corn, the new wine, and the oil, which was commanded to be given to the Levites and the singers and the porters, and the offerings of the priests. But in all this time was not I at Jerusalem. For in the two and thirtieth year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, came I unto the king, and after certain days obtained I leave of the king. And I came to Jerusalem and understood of the evil that Eliashib did for Tobiah in preparing him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And it grieved me sore. Therefore I cast forth all the household stuff That's a good King James Bible word, amen. The stuff of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I commanded, and they cleansed the chambers, and thither brought I again the vessels of the house of God with the meat offering and the frankincense. We'll stop our reading there. Father, we love you tonight, Lord. Thank you for the house of God. Thank you for these precious people, my church family. Lord, I'm so thankful to get to come and to worship you with them tonight. I pray that the Spirit of God would have free course and liberty tonight to work in our hearts and in our minds, that which would bring you the most glory. Lord, help us to realize that that's what all this is about, is bringing glory unto you, that through our obedience to your word and to the leadership of the Holy Spirit, we can glorify you more day by day, and even now, here in this moment, we can do so. Lord, we love you. Pray that you'd bless the preaching of your word. May it magnify Christ. We ask it in his precious name. Amen. We preach this morning on the life of Jotham. And we preached on how that Jotham warred against the Ammonites. It's interesting that as we come to Nehemiah chapter number 13, we find once again the Ammonites at large, but particularly an Ammonite by the name of Tobiah, who's causing trouble once again in the land of Israel. So to frame your mind to what we're reading tonight, this of course is during the Restoration Era, of the children of Israel. They have spent 70 years in Babylon. They have now been permitted to come back into the land of Israel. Uh, and they, under Nehemiah's leadership, have been rebuilding the walls there in the city of Jerusalem. The temple, of course, was uh, already built under the guidance of Ezra in the book of Ezra. But now they have built the walls. They have uh, somewhat restored both the temple and the city. And they are once again functioning as a people. 
And yet, you know, we would hope and we would like to believe that the book of Nehemiah would end on a positive note. Now, I guess depending on your perspective, it does in that Nehemiah comes in and sets some things right. But it's interesting ever they get everything in order. You know, the work of God in our life never stops. And Nehemiah comes back and he finds that things in his absence had fallen once again into chaos and into disarray. And he sets about setting things in order in the house of God. One of the problems that he finds when he arrives back is the aged high priest, Eliashib, has taken a man by the name of Tobiah the Ammonite, who, if you're a student of this book of the Bible, is not a new name to you, but rather he has been present all through this book of Nehemiah. And he makes for him a little place in the house of God a place that was to be consecrated to the Lord, a place that was to be used for the things of God, is instead used as a lodging place, as a a secret room to hide away this unclean man, this opponent of the work of God by the name of Tobiah. You know, I began to look at this verse and think about it in regards to our life. And you know, in the Old Testament, the temple of God has a lot of similarities to how God works in your life and mine today. The New Testament, we're told that our body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. We're called the temple of God. When you think about things under those terms, it's interesting to think about this man who, though he is consecrated to serve the Lord, has made in the house of God a little separate place where he can hide away this unclean individual whom he has an alliance with. And I think about your life and my life and how that so often, though we are the temple of God, consecrated to the Lord, bought and paid for by Him, He owns the receipt to us. We have His name stamped on our soul that very often we likewise will take a little area of our life and consecrate it instead of to the Lord. We consecrate it to some pet sin that we are harboring and indulging. I want to preach to you on this thought tonight, a secret place for your sin. And here's what I hope God does tonight. I hope the Holy Ghost takes the searchlight of Scripture and shines it through your soul. And I hope that He exposes in your heart and mind any areas of your life where maybe you've had secreted away some sin that displeases the Lord. Now, I want you to notice a couple things by way of introduction. Notice how this passage begins. It says in verse 1, on that day they read in the book of Moses in the audience of the people. Can I say number one tonight, the first thing we see happening in this passage is the reading of God's precepts. Can I tell you the word of God has supernatural power. Your life will never be clean without the word of God. It takes the truth of God's word to reveal and remove the things in our life that displease the Lord. And it's amazing the power of the Word of God in that capacity. We're getting ready over the next three days to have a preacher come and preach for us. And I I love Brother Curtis. He's a man of God. He's a preaching machine. He's so big when he gets preaching in a big way, the whole building shakes. But if anything happens over the next three days, it won't be because the preacher brought revival along in his pocket. It'll be because he takes the holy, inspired, preserved, inerrant Word of God and sounds it forth like a trumpet and preaches the truth to us. Because the Word of God has that power. That's why often in your life and mine, when we begin to drift from the Lord, we begin to drift from our Bible. 
Because we don't like how it smites our soul and how it shows us in our disobedience. We see the reading of God's precepts. And what does that produce? Well, what did they find when they read? The Bible says therein was found written, <coughs> excuse me, that the Ammonite and the Moabite should not come into the congregation of God forever. Now, this was a problem because we're told in verse number 3 that there was a mixed multitude in the children of Israel. Now, that mixed multitude uh, that it's speaking of, you say, preacher, what does that mean, mixed multitude? Well, it's true they were ethnically mixed. That wasn't what God was so disturbed by. What he was disturbed by was how they were spiritually mixed. You'll actually find, if you study your Bible, uh, that there was a time when God did permit a Moabite into the land of Israel. In fact, he planted her right within the genealogy of Christ. Her name is Ruth. So God's not offended at the notion that these people are Ammonites by dint of their ethnicity, but rather that they are spiritually polluted people. And they had permitted these people to come into the congregation and to marry and and to ingrain themselves within the camp of Israel. And it says in verse 3, Now it came to pass when they heard the law that they separated from Israel all the mixed multitude. We see not only the reading of God's precepts, but we see the revival of God's people here. What is revival? It's getting our lives right with Christ. We're getting ready, as we said, to have these meetings. You say, preacher, what are you hoping for? I'm hoping people get their hearts closer to Christ. I'm hoping if there's sin in your life that the Holy Ghost puts His divine, omnipotent finger on it and shows it to you and that the conviction of God falls on you so heavy that you can't leave this place before you've confessed it and gotten your heart in the right condition with the Lord. That's what we're hoping for this week, and that's what they were doing here. That's what frames the context of verse number 4. Because you'll notice your Bible says this, and before this. In other words, this all came about because the people of God at large were getting right with the Lord. And one of the things that had to be addressed, if that was going to happen, was this man Eliashib and this, this heinous trespass had to be dealt with. I would say if revival's going to happen this week, it'll begin when God begins to root out the secret sins. I'm not talking about the character flaws. That's how we talk about sin. Well, it's a character flaw. I'm not just talking about the bad habits. I'm talking about when God begins to deal with the sin in our life. And so revival began to sweep through the people, and this produced a response in the situation of this man named Eliashib. Now, when you read about this man, Eliashib, if this is all you read about him, I think you'll get maybe a skewed perspective of it. You'll believe him to be sort of a cowardly and craven individual. You will consider him to be someone who is casual in his commitment to the Lord. Someone who does not really love the Lord and has not served him. But we'll see here in a few moments that that could not be farther from the truth. In fact, this man Eliashib had for many years faithfully served the Lord. But something happened in his life. It's a reminder to you and I that we might have a track record of faithfulness to God Ain't none of us so far along that we can't fail. Say, so, preacher, it wouldn't happen to me. I've been saved 40 years. Yeah, it could happen to you. Preacher, it couldn't happen to me. I've seen God do too many great things. Hey, it could happen to you. What happened in this man's life? Well, I want you to notice a few thoughts tonight. Notice number one, and here's the question we're asking in this part of the message. How did this sin develop? Because, you know, sin, though, it is an action that we commit in a moment. Often there's a road that leads to that place of decision. And in Eliashib's life, we see that that took place. Notice the alliance that made this possible. Notice also with me tonight the person of this alliance. 
We're told only in our text that it's a man by the name of Tobiah. Now, that's not Toby, all right? But it's Tobiah. Somebody asked me just, just the other day, said, it's Toby short for anything. I said, yeah. He said, what? I said, Toby. I just, I, I, it's not Tobijah. It's not Tobiah. It's not Tobias. It's not Tobiothopy. It's just Toby. That's what it is on the birth certificate. And I bear no kindred to this man, Tobiah. He's an Ammonite. I'm an Appalachian American. But when we study this man's life and his interaction throughout with the people of God, you know what we'll find? You remember we said this morning the Ammonites are a picture of the flesh? The, the blood kin of the children of Israel who are the present constant thorn in their side, seeking to prohibit them from serving the Lord. Well, here's what you'll find. What was true of Ammonites is true of an Ammonite, and Tobiah serves the same role in the life of the children of Israel. And so when we think about this man Eliashib and, and the decisions he made, what we find is that it was a product in many ways or likened unto you and I leaning upon and indulging the flesh. And when you study the record of how Tobiah lived and behaved, you'll find some instructive truths about how the flesh reacts and lives in our life as well. We find him introduced in Nehemiah chapter number 2, verse number 10. Nehemiah has shown up bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, excited, ready to take on hell with a water pistol and get these walls built within a fortnight. But the Bible says this in verse 10, When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite, heard of it, here's what happened. It grieved them exceedingly that there was come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. Now, track with me for just a moment here tonight. He's upset that somebody's doing something for the people of God. Can I tell you this? Your flesh is grieved at the thought that the work of God would be furthered in your life and my life. You'll never get your flesh to calm down, tame it, behave, and help you in serving the Lord. The flesh will always be grieved at what God's doing in your life. We talked about it this morning, about the embarrassment of the flesh, and that is a healthy and natural thing for the people of God to do, is to seek to embarrass their flesh. Why do we serve God publicly? It embarrasses the flesh. Why are we bold in our testimony? It embarrasses the flesh. Why do we go down to an altar? It embarrasses the flesh. It's not for the purpose of embarrassing your heart, but it is to embarrass your flesh and remind your flesh it does not run you. Can I tell you this? Your flesh, when it sees you making a move towards God, is deeply grieved and disturbed. You ever notice how uncomfortable it is to get right with God? It's not the new man that's bothered by that prospect. It's the old man that is. And here's what we see in Tobiah. We, we see him to spite the children of Israel for serving God. In your flesh, uh, it despises the notion that you would serve God. We find him again down in verse 19 of that chapter, Nehemiah chapter 2. The Bible says this, But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant the Ammonite, and Geshem the Arabian heard it. When they heard that Nehemiah had come and he was going to build the wall, here's what they did. They laughed us to scorn and despised us and said, what is this thing that ye do? Will ye rebel against the king? Uh, Tobiah doesn't just say that. Down in chapter 4, verse 3, the Bible says, Tobiah the Ammonite was by him and he said, even that which they build, if a fox go up, he shall even break down. Their stone wall. We see him here to scorn Nehemiah for serving God. And can I tell you this? Not only does your flesh despise it uh, whenever you seek to do something for the Lord, uh, but it sneers at you when you seek to do something for God. 
Have you ever noticed how loudly your flesh will protest and remind you of your failures when you set about to serve the Lord? That's not by accident. That's the flesh saying, you can't do it. It's impossible. There's no way you can make strides for God. There's no way that you can gain ground in your walk with the Lord. And the flesh will always scorn and scoff you for for serving the Lord. It's part of the reason this world scorns and scoffs the things of God because it operates wholly in the realm of the flesh. And the flesh knows only to scorn serving God. Then down in chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, we're told another thing about Tobiah. It says, But it came to pass that when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabians and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were made up and that the breaches began to be stopped, then they were very wroth. And here's what they did. They conspired all of them together to come and to fight against Jerusalem and to hinder it. We see him here trying to stop him from serving God. And the flesh will always seek to prevent you from serving the Lord. It'll do this by uh, responding and indulging in temptation and in, and, in, and in sin. It'll do this by seeking to rob your nerve when you make commitments to God. It'll do this by seeking to bully you away from taking steps towards God and Tobiah is present every step of the way, a constant obstacle, a stumbling block to try to prevent Nehemiah. Down in chapter number 6, verse 19, we have a, a final thing said about him. The Bible says this, that Tobiah in verse 19 sent letters to put me, to put Nehemiah in fear. In other words, when none of that would work, when he couldn't bully him, when he couldn't stop him, he tried to harass him with these letters and strike fear into Nehemiah's heart. There's a reason it's scary to step out on faith. The new man's not scared of faith. The new man operates solely in the realm of faith. But the old man is terrified at the prospect of faith. You know why that is? Because he doesn't want you realizing how good it is to live for God. The devil, the world, and the flesh, if they're terrified of anything, they're terrified that you're going to taste and see how gracious the Lord is. They don't want you to do it. They know if you ever step out and do that, that'll be all. You'll you'll be hooked and you won't be able to walk away. So in many ways, he reminds us of the flesh and he reminds us how the flesh and sin behaves in our life. But then notice not only the person of this alliance. It says he was allied unto Tobiah. How'd this happen? How does that take place that a godly man like Eliashib is allied to a godless man like Tobiah? Well, notice the process of this alliance. Now, let's not look at Tobiah, but let's instead think about Eliashib. And what does the Bible say about him? Well, back in chapter 3, verse number 1, we're told this, Then Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brethren the priests, and they builded the sheep gate. Now, this is the beginning, but if you are a student of the Bible, you've seen how that they go through and build all of the twelve gates around the city of Jerusalem. And they exert great, great effort and they, they are, they are committed and disciplined in serving the Lord. And the Bible says that Eliashib was the very man who was overseeing this work on a day to day basis. You know what that tells me? That tells me he was committed at one time. Uh, listen, I couldn't tell you the numbers of people that used to be committed to God that ain't committed to Him anymore. Now, I don't want, I don't want to despair you or discourage you. There's a lot of folks that haven't been in the past that are now today, and God's doing great things in people's lives, not just in a broad sense, but even day by day I see God working in people's lives. But here's the truth you and I need to understand. Just because we've been committed to God and just because we are committed to God today, that's no guarantee 
if, if we let down our guard, if we allow sin in our life, then we likewise could find ourselves in just as dire a situation and embarrassing a situation as this man did. The preacher, you don't understand I'm committed to God. Well, you are today. You are today. But are you purposed to be that next week? Everybody that's ever, I'm going to use, I'm going to use a modern term. Is that okay? Cause I'm so hip and cool. Everybody that's ever flaked out on God. You know what that means, right? Flaky people, right? Anybody that's ever flaked out on God, there was a moment when they did it. There was a moment where if you'd walked up to him and looked at him, you'd have seen a committed individual. And then afterwards, when you looked at their life, you would have seen that that commitment had all evaporated. I see that he was a committed man. But then in verse number one, it goes on further. The Bible says this, not only did they build it, but they sanctified it and set up the doors of it. Even under the tower of Maya, they sanctified it under the tower of Hananiel. Now, when it says they sanctified it, that's not loose language. What it literally means is that Eliashib carried out the duties of the high priest in consecrating this work unto God. Sacrifices would have been made. Ceremonies would have been performed. And Eliashib would have been in a right condition to perform all of these things. You know what it tells me? Not only was he committed, but there was a time in his life that he was consecrated. There was a time in his life when he was clean. Now, none of us are perfect. None of us are sinless. None of us are spotless. Nor were any of the Old Testament high priests. But to be a high priest, you had to keep short accounts with God and walk in righteousness. And Eliashib was a man that had done this. He was not somebody... That was vile. Listen, I, I mean, he was not a Hophni or a Phineas. He was a man that had been close to God and clean in his manner of living. And some of you are sitting there thinking, Preacher, yeah, get him. Go preach at him. But you ain't preaching at me because my life's clean. Well, it is right now. But will it be in a month's time? I'm proud if you can say your life is clean with the Lord. We're getting ready here in a little while to have the, the Lord's Supper. And uh, you're welcome. Nobody's going to turn you away. The only way we'd turn anybody away from the Lord's Supper is if they was living in open sin. To my knowledge, nobody else uh, uh, other than my wife is living in open sin. I actually just said else and figured I need to say something after that. As far as I know, no, nobody's living in, in open sin. I don't mean you're living right, just you're good at hiding it, I guess. <laughs> but nobody's going to, going to turn away from you and and... And listen, I'm proud for you. I hope you are living in a, in a condition. You can say, I know that I'm right with the Lord. I know that I'm clean before Him. But I wonder if you'll be in a right condition to take it the next time we do. There's people took it last time, probably can't take it this time. There's people that was clean last time, walking with God, that are nowhere to be found tonight. You say, preacher, how'd this happen? Well, we'll get there in a moment. But here's what you need to understand. It happened to him. It could happen to you. And it could happen to me. I see he was committed. I see he was consecrated. But now let's get to the heart of the matter. So what happened in his life? Well, the Bible says back in our text chapter, chapter 13, down verse number 28, an interesting statement is made. The Bible says this. One of the sons of Joiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat, the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. So I'm not going to break out the whiteboard and the pieces of string, but we all ought to be able to follow along. Eliashib's grandson had intermarried into the family 
of Sanballat, the friend of Tobiah, the Ammonite. Isn't that interesting? How something like that happened? I mean, all through the book of Nehemiah, this man is a constant opponent to the work of God. Somewhere along the line, the standards fell. Somewhere along the line, the line was blurred. The distinctions were disregarded. Somewhere along the line, they made peace with iniquity. And now all of a sudden, Eliashib is all tangled up with these wicked men. I'm going to say a couple things here. One is practical. Uh, Listen, I hope you love your kids. I love my kids. But ain't none of us, well, none of us love our kids more than we love the Lord. I'll tell you something I've seen as a phenomena over and over and over again. And And I'm proud to say, I don't know of a single soul in this room that this could be said about. But I can't tell you the numbers of preachers that I've seen compromise because their kids went liberal, because their grandkids went liberal. And they felt like to save face. They felt like to be a good uh, papa or to be a good daddy. They had to go that direction. I'm not saying don't love them. Love them. Love them with the love of Christ. But if you love them with the love of Christ, you won't go with them down the path of compromise. Eliashib made a common mistake. He, he, he made a mistake that is, is ages old and is familiar. But here's what happened. He was committed. He was consecrated. But then he got compromised. He allowed himself to love something more than the Lord. And that led him down a path of disobedience. I trust this is true for your life. That if you wind up messed up in the spiritual ditch a month from now, it won't be because you don't love the Lord. But it probably will be because you love something else more than Him. You remember the salient question that Christ asked Simon Peter? Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? More than these? Christianity today is marked simply by the notion, do we love Him? But I will tell you this, that question is insufficient. The question is not, do you love Him? The question is, do you love Him more than these? Is there anything vying for the preeminence of Christ in your heart and in your life? I don't doubt one moment that Eliashib loved the Lord. But somewhere along the line, he loved something else more. And it led him to this place. And by the way, I would say in your life and in my life, we need to realize, by the way, who who was it? Who was it that he led in? It was Tobiah, the Ammonite, a picture of the flesh. I know you say to yourself, oh, preacher, I'm so spiritual, the flesh don't give me any problems. But your Bible says no man ever yet hated his own flesh. It's interesting that the rallying cry of society is that of self-esteem. We're told every problem that exists in the cultural psyche is due to low self-esteem. But your King James Bible says no man yet ever hated his own flesh. The problem is not that we think about ourselves too little. It's that we think about ourselves too much. But in that moment, the flesh will deceive you. Paul warned about the old man being corrupt according to the deceitful lust. Will deceive you into believing that you have a right to do wrong. No man's ever had a right to do wrong. So he makes a place, a small place in the house of God for this man named Tobiah. I see the alliance that made this possible. But now here's a question that must be asked. Why didn't somebody stop him? And here's what I find when I think carefully about this passage. I see not only the alliance that made this possible, but I see the apathy that made this possible. Think about where he 
put him. The Bible says in verse 5, he had prepared for him a great chamber, which aforetime they had laid the meat offerings, the frankincense, and the vessels, and the tithes of the corn, the new wine, and the oil, which was commanded to be given to the Levites, and the singers, and the porters, and the offerings of the priests. Think with me for a moment about the neglect that facilitated this sin. question has to be asked, how could he move him in if that room was already full of stuff? That's King James' word, stuff. Some of y'all got rooms in your house you got big plans for, but the problem is it's been overtaken by stuff. One of these days you're going to get it cleaned out, get rid of all that stuff so you can put other stuff in there. And the question has to be asked, how could he do this? I'll tell you exactly how. Nehemiah tells us down in verse number 10, says this, I perceived that the portions of the Levites had not been given them. For the Levites and the singers that did the work were fled everyone to his field. Then contended I with the rulers and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their place. That doesn't mean what I wish it meant, but I set them in their place. Then brought all Judah the tithes of the corn and the new wine and the oil under the treasuries. See, here's the truth of the matter. It would have been much more difficult, much more difficult for Eliashib to install Tobiah if he had needed to empty the storehouse in the first place. See, he would no doubt have been challenged. They had seen him carting out the offerings and the corn and, and the oil and the new wine. Somebody would have stopped him and said, Eliashib, what do you think you're doing? But he didn't have to do any of that. See, the truth of the matter, it was the emptiness that their disobedience had caused that made room for Tobiah in the first place. See, when you neglect your duties, you make space for disobedience. He didn't have no problem. And I can see how it's done, man. I've been in little churches. You've been in little churches before. Uh, sometimes you'll go into them. You'll go back to their Sunday school room. 85% of their Sunday school wing is storage. You'll go back into the prayer room and it's stacked full of decorations. You say, what happened? Well, they quit praying. And pretty soon it just became an empty room. Well, they quit reaching people. Pretty soon it just became an empty room. And then, listen, it's a little hard to fault the person that comes along and says, we ain't doing nothing with this anyway. Why don't we use it for something else? It ain't going to be hard for your flesh to come walking by your life and say, hey, you ain't doing nothing for God anyway. Why don't you go ahead and live for self a little bit? Neglect was what led them to this place. And in your life and mine, and I'm not saying that we just, when we get sin in our life, we power through and, and, and fake it and pretend that everything's okay. But I am saying that when we live uh, with an open, empty space in our life of disobedience, when we create a vacuum, the flesh will find wickedness to fill it. And that's what happened here, man. I see the neglect that facilitated this sin, but then I can't help but think about the neglect that followed this sin. I mean, <laughs> I don't know about you, but probably at some point during this time, somebody came by and said, now, Eliashib, we brought an offering. And here's what he had to say. He had to say, I'm sorry, I don't have no place for it. He probably had to say, I'm, I'm sorry, that room's full. And here's the dual truth that I want you to understand. When we're not serving God, it leads to sin. And when sin is present, we cease serving God. Every sin that we indulge and entertain prevents us from serving God in a greater capacity. It's a zero-sum equation, my friend. 
you've got so much in your life. And it's either going to be of the Lord or it's going to be of the flesh. And here's what the flesh will tell you. You can have both. You can live for God and you can indulge me. You can live for Him and you can live for me. But Christ settled this already. You cannot serve two masters. And if you're going to let this one in, you're going to have to kick the other one out. If you're going to let the flesh run your life, then you'll have no place to serve God in your life. And you find this sad, sad, dire spiral that takes place. I see the apathy that made this possible. But notice, and you don't believe this, but I'll be done here in a moment. It's good you don't believe it. It might not be true. I see I see the absence that made this possible. Look at verse 6. It says, But in all this time was not I, Nehemiah, at Jerusalem. For in the two and thirtieth year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, came I unto the king, and after certain days obtained I leave of the king. It's interesting. It's a natural thing, I think we would all assume, which is this. He wouldn't have pulled that silliness if Nehemiah had been around. I love how Nehemiah deals with this here in a moment. We'll get to it in the preaching, man. But son, he just, I mean, he... He comes out, I'm talking about like a Union County woman scorned and starts dragging that dude's stuff out and throwing it on the front lawn right in front of the neighbors and everybody. He's probably arguing too, you know. I love it. I love it. And that tells me this. Eliashib would have never done this had Nehemiah been there in the first place. I'd say two things about this. Number one, there is a type here. Nehemiah in the book of Nehemiah is in many ways a type of Christ in the restoration of Israel as a nation during the Millennial Kingdom. It's interesting when you look, there's a title that's given to Nehemiah earlier in chapter 7. You know he's called? He's called the Tershatha. That's a unique title. You only find it here in the book of Nehemiah. And the context is when they divided everyone that was not of pure blood from Israel from the people. And, and it says this, that they had, they had to be put outside of the camp until there was a Tershatha that wore the linen ephod that could come and could make intercession for them. The Tershatha was the governor, the administrator of that region. And that's why Nehemiah identifies himself as such. He's the governor over Israel. But an interesting thing that in the Old Testament, it was prohibited for a king to enter into the priesthood. You remember, we preached about it this morning in the life of Uzziah. But here's Nehemiah functioning in both roles, maybe not as a king, but as a governor, and the reason is because it served as a type of the Lord Jesus Christ who will fulfill all roles of prophet, priest, and king to the nation of Israel during the millennial kingdom. And so in many ways there's a type here, and here's what I want you to see. Uh, Nehemiah had gone to the king. He was gone for a short time and would return at an undisclosed moment. And in that absence... This depravity and degeneracy had developed. It's a reminder to us that Christ has gone right now to His Father, the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, Paul calls Him in First Timothy. And He will return suddenly at an undisclosed moment. So there's a type here, but notice not only that, there's a truth here. Eliashib could not have committed this heinous act if Nehemiah had been present. I would say this for your life and mine. When we live estranged from God's felt presence, there's no telling what we may do. You've heard me say this before. There's God's faithful presence and there's God's felt presence. 
There's God's express presence, and then there's God's experiential presence. What do you mean, preacher? Well, his faithful express presence is always there. He said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. And yet we find times, even throughout the New Testament, when people that knew God and loved God got in such a sad, sorry state that though God was present in their life, they weren't walking with Him and they weren't listening to Him and they weren't hearing from Him. I would say in our lives that it's true. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. He saves us eternally, irrevocably, irreversibly. We are secure and saved by His promise and His grace. I believe in the eternal security of the belief. But it is likewise true that in our life, as we drift from the Lord, we can get to a place that He's there, but we ain't walking with Him. He's there, but we ain't meeting with Him. He's there, but we're not hearing from Him. I would just simply say one of the best ways you can stay clean is stay close. You say, preacher, I want to stay clean. Then stay close. Because had Nehemiah been present here, had Eliashib had to contend with him, he would have been too shamefaced to do such an awful thing. You and I in our life, when we're walking with him day by day, it'll keep us out of a lot of trouble. So I guess if we were to ask some questions, one of the questions we've asked and hopefully answered is how did this sin develop? How did this happen? But then I love that it don't end there because we can also answer this question. How was this sin dealt with? We're told in the New Testament how to deal with sin in our life. Very simple formula. First John 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And when you know it, that we see this exact pattern being carried out manifestly in this situation. Verse number 7 says this, And I came to Jerusalem and understood of the evil that Eliashib did for Tobiah in preparing him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. Say, preacher, how'd that happen? Somebody told on him. Don't you hate snitches? Son, around here they get stitches. Isn't that what they say? Y'all got quiet when I said that. I don't know what to do with that, preacher. Somebody told on him, right? Somebody went and let Nehemiah know. I bet Nehemiah would have probably dealt with it better if Eliashib himself had come and admitted it. But, you know, here's the truth of the matter. If this sin was going to be dealt with, number one, it had to be revealed. See, we want God to just politely ignore our sin like we've been doing for months or years. But I'm sorry, God's not going to do that for you. He's not going to help you be a hypocrite. If you want things right with God, you're going to have to confess your sin to God. Notice the very, very simple but powerful and poignant conditional phrase in first john 1 9 if if we confess our sins tells me it's paramount tells me it's necessary tells me it's a prerequisite tells me it's not enough to just be convicted we have to confess our sin so many of us can't get victory because the farthest we go is to get convicted about it really if we're being honest if we had a choice we wouldn't choose to do that either But the Holy Ghost don't give us a choice. He just convicts us without asking our permission. But then we stop there and we don't confess that sin to God. I see, number one, it had to be revealed. I see, number two, I like this, man, verse 8. Some some Bible verses make me chuckle. It says, and it grieved me sore. Therefore, and by the way, it grieves him sore. Our sin grieves him sore. 
So here's what he did. Therefore, I cast forth all the household stuff of Tobiah out of the chamber. I love it. I can see it happening. I can see him just grabbing clothes, throwing them on the front yard, grabbing a lamp, throwing them on the front yard, grabbing the house cat, throwing it on the front yard. Utter abandon and disregard. Tobiah, I don't care about your stuff because your stuff ain't my stuff. And I just got to get it out of here. Would to God we get rid of sin out of our life with that same attitude. You know what Paul says about the repentance of the church at Corinth? I love this. He says, yea, what zeal? He says, yea, what vengeance? He's talking about their attitude about dealing with their sin. You know why the church at Corinth got right? Because they got mad about their own sin. You know why we don't get right? Because the only people sin makes us mad is everybody else's. We won't be broken from our sin till we're broken over our sin. And we won't be rid of it till we're disgusted with it. And until we get to the place that with the same vigor and the same fervor and the same passion as Nehemiah had, that we take all of that wickedness of the flesh and throw it out of the house then we're probably not going to get right with him. I see it had to be revealed. I see it had to be removed. If we confess our sins, here's what he'll do. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. He'll cast it out. He'll forgive us. He'll pardon us. But then here's what he'll do. He'll cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And notice what Nehemiah had done, verse 9. Then I commanded, and they cleansed the chambers. And thither brought I again the vessels of the house of God with the meat offering and the frankincense. You know, one of the most disturbing things to me about COVID was to learn how few people were washing their hands. Because when it happened, everybody was like, hey, y'all need to wash your hands. My thought was, hey, wasn't you doing that already? People say, hey, cover your mouth when you cough. You needed, like a society, catastrophic, crushing pandemic to teach you to cover your mouth when you cough? Did you not have parents? And it was just, just disturbing, the notion that, that, that everybody's walking around with filthy hands. I've been shaking some of them hands. That bothers me. That's what you do when you're a preacher. You shake people's hands. No wonder I'm sick all the time. Wash your hands. I, that, that's, that's not endorsement of the narrative of COVID. That's just common sense, right? And everybody said, there's a pandemic. We've got to start cleaning things, you know. Lysol went to $9 a bottle and people lost their minds. Because they said, if, if we're going to get it clean and safe, then we've got to cleanse it out of here. That was the perspective. That was the thought process. I would say in your life and in my life, if we want to be rid of sin, we've got to cleanse our life of it. Here's the problem, right? We, we mm, I hope I can say this right. Here's the problem. We get upset at our flesh and we make our flesh sleep on the couch for a few nights. And then we wonder why we can't get no victory. We, we get, we get upset at our disobedience. We get grieved at it. So we kick the flesh out for a few nights, stay with its mama. And we wonder why we can't get no victory. But here's what Nehemiah did. He threw everything that belonged to Tobiah out. And son, I mean, he, he wiped everything down and changed the locks. He said, I'm going to give... Here's how Paul says in the New Testament. I'm going to give none occasion to the flesh. Until we get to the place that as the church at Corinth, with that same vengeance 
against our flesh, we repent and cleanse our life of that disobedience. Why, it's no wonder. If we leave all the stuff of the flesh in our life, it's no wonder that He's just going to walk back in, plop down on the couch, and start changing everything around us once again. We've got to make real changes in our life if we want to see real changes in our life. So I wonder if maybe there's some little room somewhere where you've got your pet sin and the flesh has bullied you and intimidated you and convinced you that you can get victory over any number of things, but not over that. This is just a, an area of disobedience that you and God will have to live with the rest of your days. I'm here to tell you tonight it don't have to be that way. I'm here to tell you that the, the Tershitha, the governor, the, the, the authority that is our high priest can come in and cast all those things out. But we're first going to have to acknowledge, confess it, forsake it, and give it to him. Let's bow our heads together tonight as a musician comes to play. I want to give you an opportunity to start that process right here and now. The altar's open. You don't have to wait for the first note to be played if God touched your heart. Won't you meet him down in this altar? That secret sin, that thing that nobody knows about, that thing, the thing that some people might even snicker about if they knew about it. Why are you so torn up about that? But you're not trying to please them. You're trying to please God. If the Holy Ghost is grieved enough about it that he dealt with you, then it must matter. So won't you find a place in this altar and let God have his will and way in your life? Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in his name.